Right, okay. I'm going to lay out my thinking behind uh, like how I think England should play, how I think England will play. I think those are different things. Um, and then maybe look at the different ways that England could change the games that they're playing in the, like based on the players. I think that's quite a fun thing to do. Um, and then I'll go through my kind of predicted bracket for how I think the tournament's going to play out. Um, I'm going to caveat all of this with, like, there's so many injuries that by the time, I feel like by the time I've recorded this, other players might be out injured and then this becomes perhaps less <laughs> accurate. But I think that's the nature of having a tournament so soon after breaking domestic seasons, isn't it? But anyway, um, right, okay. I If I was coaching England, this is what I would look to do um, in the group games. I, I'd be looking at playing uh, Pickford. I think you stick with him. I think that's, I think that's fine. We don't have a timeline on Carl Walker, so I think Trippier... Um, as the right back makes a lot of sense. Uh, I think Shaw plays left back and you play Stones with, like, for me, I think there's a case for quite a few, um, like, there's a, there's, a, there's a case for Eric Dyer, there's a case for Maguire, there's a case for Cody. I think I'd probably play Ben White. I quite like the idea of England being able to, like, have the four defenders but move into a move into a three as they're progressing up the pitch so whilst the back four would then be Shaw Stones White and Trippier like we want Trippier higher up the pitch so that he can deliver crosses I said on the podcast I did with Hayden like he's the most dangerous he's the player with the most dangerous passes from like wide right areas in the Premier League so we want to try and get him in those positions um, and then we have the three players behind him when we're building up down that side. I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, I think Rice and Bellingham, that's that's easy. I think I think, I think those two um, really, really deserve to, to be there. And then if we're looking to have Trippier really, really high, we have to kind of accept that like we want those two to be available to play back to and recycle the ball through. But if we're playing, like if there's moments in the game where we can play through the middle of the pitch, then like Bellingham can go and be part of those attacks. Um, I think that makes, I think that makes sense, and I think that's a lot of fun. Uh, that's a lot of fun to watch. Um, I'm playing Foden, I'm playing Saka, I'm playing Sterling, and I'm playing Kane. Um, so I guess like nominally it's a four-two-three-one. But like I said, with with Trippier getting higher up the pitch, I think it can look a bit more like a yeah three two five three two four one once we've once we've got possession. I don't see um, I don't see how Foden can't play. Um, I also like the um, some of the pictures that we might get with Sterling running in behind and Foden then being able to take up positions wide, but also Essentially, um, I think Saka has been 
brilliant for Arsenal and would flourish um, with players that require a lot of... Um, they, like they have to be defended. I think that would get more opportunities um, for England than for Arsenal than he does to get play to play one against one. Um, and I think Kane can then drop deep and have players go beyond him. He can also like be part of the um, be part of the that front line as England are building deeper. He doesn't have to come and get involved in the way that he does for Spurs. I think that's one of the kind of not frustrations, but like, I guess it's a bit of a misconception is that like Kane has kind of changed his game because that's just who he is as a player now. Like, I don't know if I agree with that. I think for Spurs, he comes deep because we need him to come deep to create and score goals. Whereas England have Rice and Bellingham and Foden um, who can take a lot of that kind of creativity on and, and do it. So, he he can be higher up and he can like he's he's so good at um like taking the ball on the turn to then slip players in or to get shots off so i think like i think i think that gives us a really really good really good balance in attack um yeah i, I think there's i think there's Obviously, a ton of options then with with where you you go if you need to change the game. Madison's obviously flying. I think he becomes um, like he's pushed his way for me anyway. I'd be looking at like introducing him in kind of the same um, at the same sort of period as as Grealish. I'd look at those two as like the two players that could really really change how we want to try and do things. Um, yeah, I think that's that's how I'd start. Um, what I think we will do is Pickford. I think it will be. I think it will be <laughs> Stones. I think it's going to be Maguire, and oh, I don't know. I really don't know. Stones. If it's if it's a three, it will be Stones, Maguire, and Dyer, and it will be. Uh, Shaw and Trippier, and I guess Rice, Bellingham. I don't see how it can be Phillips over Bellingham. Rice, Bellingham, and then I imagine Sterling, Kane, probably Mount. I think I feel like we set up like that in a in a game in a tournament. We set up like that in the Euros. I think if we're going to play a three, that's who it's going to be. And I think if we're playing a four, uh, Maguire won't start. I think he'll start Dyer, um, and Foden or Saka would come in for Maguire. So if England play a back three, it will be Pickford, Maguire, left to right, Stones, Dyer, um, then Shaw, Rice, Bellingham, Trippier, Sterling, Kane, Mount. If England are going to play a back four, I think it will be Pickford, Shaw, Stones, Dyer, Trippier, uh, Rice, Bellingham, Mount, Sterling, Kane, and I think Saka. I think Saka's going to start over Foden. Um, yeah. God, I'm excited now. Looking at our squad, it is... 
it is exciting. We've got some we've got some really good players. It's just a case of can we make it can we make it happen? I've loved all the behind the scenes stuff as well. The M and S shoot, there's some nice bits in there. I don't know if I'm quite quite been influenced to go out and buy the stuff, the kind of white sort of quarter zip top looks very, very nice. Um, but I don't think I'm quite ready to go out and buy it. Um, but that's what I think we're looking at for for the first England game tomorrow. One o'clock, very, very strange time. I'm not sure whether to go to the pub or watch it at home. Probably watch it at home. Um, but we'll see. Um, right, okay. In terms of the bracket then, Group A, Qatar uh, v uh, Ecuador kicks off in about half an hour. Um, I, I'm i still undecided as to whether or not I'm going to watch that. I'd love Qatar to finish bottom of the group. Um, so that's what I'm going to say is going to happen. I've got, a, yeah, like I kind of caveat with all those injuries as well. I'm going to kind of say here, this is what I, this is a combination of what I'd like to happen and what I think will happen. So I think Netherlands top the group, Senegal second, then Ecuador, then Qatar. Group B, I think England win the group. I'm going to say, oh, I'd put USA down, but I think I'm going to say Wales go through. So England win the group. So England top the group, Wales second, USA third, Iran fourth. Uh, group C, I think Argentina top, Mexico second. I think they finally get over this uh, never getting out the group thing and come second. Uh, Poland third, Lewandowski maybe goes off, but like doesn't really matter. Oh my God, saying that they've got Zielinski who's flying for Napoli. Oh my God, I'm changing my mind right here. I'm going to say Poland finish second, Mexico go out. So scrap what I just said about Mexico getting out the group. They're not getting out the group. Argentina top, Poland second, Mexico third, Saudi Arabia fourth. Group D, uh, France win the group, Denmark second. I just don't see how... I know Denmark are brilliant, got to the Euro semi-final and they were like had a good chance to beat England in that game. I just think France have too much. Mbappe, Benzema are just flying. Um, and they've got... Yeah, I just think they're, they're brilliant. Uh, Australia third. Uh, Tunisia fourth. Group E. I reckon Germany top the group. They might beat Spain. Spain second. Uh, I've put Japan third. Costa Rica fourth. Um, I think Germany are going to be pretty good. Um, and they've kind of I don't know whether this uh, like when we beat them in the Euros like they just weren't getting nearly what they deserved to get out of Kimmich um, and I think he's going to play midfield and like that's going to be massive for them so Germany and Spain get out of the group Japan third Costa Rica fourth group F <sighs> I'd love to see Canada do well I think that would be so much fun to see Alfonso Davis. Like he plays higher up the pitch for them. I think that like, he will be fun to watch. But I think Croatia and Belgium are just better. Um, I know it feels like all the previews I've listened to, everyone's a bit down on Belgium, and I I get it. I just still think there's enough there for them to to be decent. Um, I'm going to say Croatia win the group, though. I think that would be fun. Um, so Croatia top, Belgium second, Canada third, Morocco fourth, 
Uh, group G, Brazil win the group. And then it's... Uh, I reckon... I'm going to say Serbia. Serbia comes second. Maybe Vlajevic masterclass in a in a couple of these group games um sets them up to be pretty good so serbia second mm, switzerland third cameroon fourth group h this is right this is my uh if i was gonna have like a hot take i i think that all this ronaldo nonsense is gonna absolutely derail them and they're going out i'm gonna put i'm gonna pick Portugal to finish bottom of Group H and I'd really like to see that happen I think that would be great so Uruguay top the group with my boy Ben Tanker. Uh I'd love to see Son do well I think Son maybe has a moment similar to what he had when he uh, when they beat Germany in 2018 where he like, had the goal but they don't get out of the group so I'm going to say Uruguay top Ghana second Korea third Portugal fourth and I'd love that to happen. I don't feel confident about saying it, but that's what I'm going to say anyway. So, round of 16, Netherlands v Wales. I think Netherlands win that. Uh, Argentina, Denmark. God, these are good games. Argentina, Denmark. I think, I think Argentina win that. Uh, Germany, Belgium. Germany, beat Belgium, Brazil v Ghana, I'm going to say Brazil win, England v Senegal, I think England win that, France v Poland, France win that, uh, Croatia, Spain, Spain win that, Uruguay, Serbia, Uruguay win that, right, Netherlands, Argentina, that's a really good game, I think Argentina, are, are, they seem pretty strong, I've, I've I'm going to put them through. Germany v Brazil rematch from uh, from 2014. I think Brazil have got too much attacking prowess um, and they're going to go through. England v France, I just can't. I can't see England beating France. I know that like Kante, Pogba not there. I just think Mbappe and Benzema and Griezmann and there's just too, there's too much there that that would cause England problems. I don't I don't know we're quite ready to defend that sort of uh, that sort of front line. Um, Uruguay Spain, oh tough one. Spain, I just I think they might dom. Okay, I'm going to say Uruguay beat Spain, dominate the ball Spain, but are unable to to penetrate Uruguay. Uruguay and and Uruguay go through. So semi-finals. God, real South American flavour. Argentina, Brazil, obviously the big one. Oh, I think Argentina. I think Messi's doing it. So Argentina beat Brazil. I think France beat Uruguay. Argentina v France. Argentina to win the tournament. I do not feel confident about any of that. Um, we're going to see how it all unfolds like I say if there's injuries to I don't know if there's terrible injuries to some of these players who are going to have huge impacts on the games then this obviously becomes pretty obsolete pretty quickly but there we go 
I am looking forward to it now. I'm looking forward to the football, even in, over the course of of doing this. It's got me excited. Maybe I will watch the first group game. Oh, don't know. Still feel weird. Um, yeah. Part two of this is uh, is with Mikey Franklin, who is one of my best friends, dearest friends. He's also incredibly smart and he is very into geopolitics and has some pretty good perspectives on, uh, I guess, how we should feel about this tournament as football fans. So we talk about all of that sort of stuff and things to have in our heads as we're watching these games um, in part two of this. Um, so enjoy it and enjoy the tournament and we'll have uh, we'll have episodes up on the Sundays through the tournament as we go, try and get a couple of guests on, um, even if they're only short appearances. Um, but yeah, come on England, I guess. I th- we, we have got a we have got a good squad. It's just a case of if it comes together. I mean, I've picked us to get knocked out in the quarterfinals, so so maybe don't listen to me. All right, here's my key. Uh, enjoy the rest of the episode. Mikey Franklin, one of my oldest friends, blue tick on Twitter, and we need a third thing. License to swear. I think you're all set up then. That's the only intro you need, really. Nothing about any qualifications I might have to speak on the subject of football <laughs> and human rights. I don't really have any. I'm a football fan. I'm like a lower mid-level political operative without a great deal of success. Uh, but I have strong opinions both about football and geopolitics and I'm very grateful for the opportunity to share them with your audience. Wow. Welcome. Um, I said that I wanted to chat to you about like the World Cup and I think broadly speaking, I think the kind of ideas around like how we got to the point that like the tournament kicks off in two days and like it's just it's just happening um I wondered maybe if you had any thoughts on like how you think we got to this point in in society in the world I think the first thing we have to do is just like take half a step back I'm I'm swept up in it despite all of my profound objections to the World Cup being held in Qatar. I'm excited. I didn't buy a Panini sticker book this year, but I was tempted. But even as we're all tremendously excited, we have to take a step back and say, like, it is fucking ridiculous. Like, that the World Cup is being held in Qatar is an outrage and a disgrace. It's a stain on football and I'm going to watch it. We're all going to watch it. It's the World Cup. But it is absolutely morally bankrupt. Yeah. For a whole for a whole host of reasons, right? I think the, the economics of hosting a sporting event are such that increasingly it gravitates towards dictatorships, right? Russia in 2014, sorry, in 2018. Mm-hmm. Um Qatar now, China hosting the last Winter Olympics, that you need to, in order to be able to find the money to build a bunch of like largely pointless stadiums, you have to have fairly weak democratic structures that aren't going to object too strongly when all of this money goes missing from the public purse. But that we got to this point now, 
I think really is a new low. I imagine FIFA will be able to bring us like lower. It's always like this. We can always go lower when we're talking with FIFA. But so many of the things that I think, you know, we've all kind of heard joked about, right? How many stadiums, is it five or six new stadiums that they've built for this World Cup in an area the size of Yorkshire? Yeah. Right? With no, this is not a country that has like a meaningful like football league with a wide fan base. Like these are stadiums that are gonna that are gonna be fallow and empty. And we see that even in countries like Brazil, right, that does have a you know, perhaps the strongest and greatest football culture of any country. Like even several of their stadiums are now largely derelict. So the fact that in an orgy of corruption, the World Cup has ended up in Qatar, in a country where it's too hot to play in the summer and may even still be too hot now, where even I saw FIFA elites don't have hotel rooms. Mm. This is the Fire Festival World Cup. It's <laughs> yeah. an absolute disgrace. Yeah, I think there's there's so there's so many bits there that like just I, yeah, it, like don't know whether to laugh or cry. I mean, the 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 funny stuff is the like like did you see the twelve pound salad? That was very fire festival. That, that or like that sort of and stuff. the beer, and then you can't buy beer in stadiums anymore. Which I mean, I don't terribly care about that, except that it's very embarrassing from FIFA because they have an enormous sponsorship contract with. But what's it about? used to be called Anheuser Busch, and now it's called AB InBev because the alcohol industry consolidates rapaciously, and okay. so they can't sell that alcohol in the stadiums, um, which is very funny at least like i'm enjoying the fact that it's deeply humiliating for everyone mm. involved right? like fifa look ridiculous and disgraced but they don't care because they're still making hundreds of millions of dollars in broadcast fees and sponsorship fees and all the other stuff because you know people like us for all of our profound objections i'm still going to watch nearly every game yeah the um the beer stuff came out today i i, I saw like a there was the kind of initial like this is silly like well you know there are a couple of takes that were like oh like what did you expect there's you know there's no alcohol in the country so why should there be football why should there be alcohol during football and then there was another take that was like this is maybe sends like a bit of a like scarier broader message which is like we can say we're going to do things and then not do things like if we like say you're going to have beer and not have beer like what else could I guess what could what else could the country kind of U-turn on? I think I mean I think they are still going to have beer in the fan zones. Is that right? Just not in the stadium. Not in the ground, right? Okay. Not in the grounds. Um, yeah, I mean clearly they can U-turn on anything. The thing that feels depressing to me is that like FIFA really they lost this fight, but they really went to the mat for the right to sell alcohol in their stadium. They didn't during the the tender and bid process for the World Cup. It was awarded in what fourteen, I think it no, ten. Ten. I think two thousand and ten they awarded eighteen and twenty two, didn't they? Um so when it was awarded in two thousand and ten, they made absolutely no demands in terms of labour rights. They made absolutely no demands in terms of LGBT fans being able to travel openly. They made absolutely no demands in terms of freedom of press. FIFA, you know, were lining their pockets, and then as a result, they were perfectly happy to award this World Cup to a like brutal dictatorship without any regard for the fans who can't travel because it's illegal for them to be gay or queer or trans in Qatar for the tens of thousands of migrant workers who have toiled in unimaginable conditions. 
none of those things were worth putting up a fight as far as FIFA is concerned. What was worth putting up a fight was selling. I was going to say a shitty beer, but actually I have to confess I really quite like Budweiser. That's fine. Uh, so, but selling beer in, in the stadiums. Um, it's, a, it's a disgraceful spectacle from, from a disgraceful organisation in... I don't want to, a thing that I think is hard is as, you know, Josh, you and I are both white, as white, I'm not a pundit, but observers or commentators in the West, in the global North, looking at it, I don't want to fall into like Orientalist and even racist tropes of like, you know, these backwards nations, like that's, and I think that's tempting. And I see that even from like quite well-meaning coverage that wants to shine a light on labour issues or LGBT issues or women's rights or any of those things and ends up talking about, you know, a broad region of the world in quite problematic, even racist terms. And I don't want to dismiss the people of Qatar. Um, I don't want to dismiss, certainly don't want to dismiss like the majority of people who live there who are not themselves Qataris and do not have the full benefits of citizenship. And maybe if you believe the FIFA spin and the Supreme Committee on Delivery and Legacy spin, this will be a a kind of ground shifting moment or a, a, a watershed moment when Qatari society starts to shift. But I don't, I don't think that's likely. Mm. Like I think this remains a way for a deeply repressive state to whitewash its legacy. I don't really remember feeling like there was as much kind of hesitance about getting excited for Russia. I don't know if you feel that way or if you remember what it was like going into that tournament and if maybe the way that we were ahead of Russia means that we're different going into this one. That's a really good question. I think there are a couple of, like social factors at work one of which is just that like it's a winter world cup so it feels very different so like we kind of inherently sense that something is off and russia you know had been in world cups before if you're a european football fan like you know they had champions league finals in in moscow and St. petersburg if you have if you're a european football fan like you've played you've seen your team play russian teams in the champions mm-hmm. league and the europa league so I think it felt a bit more normalised. But in retrospect, actually, like, it was an enormous disgrace. After the full invasion of Ukraine in February, the Champions League this past season was supposed to be held in St. Petersburg, and then it got moved, I think it was to Paris? Yeah, Paris, yeah. Um, after the invasion, because that was seen as, as unacceptable on FIFA's part. But in reality, Russia had already invaded and annexed Ukraine's land in 2014. Like, the war expanded dramatically in February of this year, but there has been an active war and Russia had been invading the, the territory of a sovereign democratic country, its neighbour, for eight years. And despite that, with four years still to go, when that invasion began in 2014, nothing changed. There was no conversation at any high political level that I recall that the World Cup should be moved as a result. And it's not like it was months before, right? Four years is enough time to move the World Cup to a country or countries that already have, you know, like several Category 5 stadiums. And I think there's a picture that's indelibly stuck in my mind. 
if I remember correctly, the first game of the 2018 World Cup was Russia v Saudi Arabia. Yeah. And I think Russia scored. And there's a picture of in the like director's box or whatever it is, Putin leaning over and offering a hand to Mohammed bin Salman and them like all chummy chummy shaking hands. That was, for me, the indelible political image of the opening game of the World Cup. These two brutal dictators, I think, have both gotten substantially worse in the last four years, but were even then presiding over countries with no freedom of expression, no freedom of speech, no real democratic or political freedom through elections. And that that was that was the face of the opening game of the most important football tournament. We should have known then, right, that this World Cup, that the World Cup generally is profoundly morally broken. Yeah. So I I I watched back the uh the like kind of film of the 2018 World Cup uh last week just to like refamiliarize myself with like the kind of stories within it. And yeah, I think Russia I think they beat Saudi Arabia like 5-0 in the in the 4-0 or 5-0 in the first game or something. And it's just like Putin's just like in the crowd and like cheering and everyone's cheering. It's just, it's like, it's just fucking horrendous when you like think about where we are four years later. And these, these dictators, these strong men use the World Cup to solidify their own domestic political position. I mean, Democrats do, you know, people in democratic countries, democratic leaders do that as well, right? You want your country to get swept up in a wave of nationalist fervor. But Clearly, clearly, it was meaningful for Russian people and did strengthen Putin's hand that Russia hosted this global football tournament. It's not, it's not really clear to me yet, or clear to anyone, I think, what the like long term political impact is going to be on Qatar. I think I spent a lot of time thinking about what the World Cup being Qatar means for FIFA and how it's been discredited. And I think I spent a lot of time thinking about what it means for football and for us as football fans and how we approach tournaments that happen under these dubious moral circumstances. But I do think it's also an interesting inflection point for Qatar, which is which is trying to figure out where it sits in terms of uh, its relationships with the global north, with Western countries. So mm. clearly it's quite deeply integrated into um, business and financial systems in the West, but politically it refuses to ally itself, similar with, with the other Gulf states. It doesn't ally itself directly with the United States, NATO, with its treaty allies. And so you see these quite interesting things, like uh, there was an American journalist being held in Myanmar, his name was Fenster, was his last name. And the US doesn't have diplomatic relations at the moment with the dictatorship that runs Myanmar. And it was actually Qatar because they can talk to the West, but they're also perfectly happy to talk to dictators without preconditions who bridge that gap. And similarly, there was a prisoner exchange recently between Russia and Ukraine trading back and forth prisoners of war uh, and Turkey, which has been sort of the middle of a lot of the negotiations, the kind of tentative negotiations in that war, but also Qatar played a crucial role. And so clearly they're trying to demonstrate the Qatari government and um, Tamim bin Hamad al-Tani, the, the emir of Qatar, through the World Cup, through these other forms of, of diplomacy, through other bits of sports washing, like owning PSG. Mm. They're trying to figure out what their place is in the world. 
And it's going to be interesting to see how that develops. I'm not optimistic. I think a few years ago, I might have been more optimistic that deepening those economic ties with the global north would have led to an increase in political liberalisation. I think one of the overarching lessons of the last few years is that you can figure out a way to integrate your country's economy deeply with the West without then extending any semblance of political rights to your population. But this is clearly a crucial moment for the future of Qatar and I think the future of the region more broadly. And maybe there's room for optimism, but more likely there isn't. <laughs> you said that you spent some time thinking about like the kind of role, did you say the role of fans or like how we like should be? How does this, how does this? this World Cup change our relationship? To football and i think it's not just this world cup right it's also it's also like the saudi takeover of newcastle, newcastle yeah which i think is is the most egregious example but actually like the other the other state takeovers of man city psg other clubs you know are similarly are similarly you know, of a similar vein mm. does is there a breaking point like is there a place that the world cup could be held like if this world cup for whatever reason, was still being held in Russia, um, as you obviously know, Josh. But but your listeners don't. My wife is from Ukraine, yeah, and so I I have a very I'm wearing a Ukrainian hat on this call. I care very very deeply about about the sovereignty and future of Ukraine. Uh, if this World Cup was being held in Russia, like, I wouldn't watch it. I would actively boycott it. I would protest more heavily than I'm protesting now. Like clearly, there is a moral line. And to my shame, this hasn't met it. I'm still going to watch. Mm. But maybe it's cumulative, right? Maybe it's all it all adds up. And I'm heartened by some of the examples of fan activism that we've seen. Uh, I thought the Socceroos protest was good. Mm -hmm. I think we may. I wouldn't be surprised if a couple of the teams did a little bit more at stadiums. Yeah, like I wouldn't. Like I wouldn't be surprised to see a couple of uh, a couple of you know European or North American teams wearing rainbow armbands or something like that. And those are small but meaningful gestures. But on some level, I think my relationship with the World Cup, which is normally like the most joyful time every four years, I just love it. I think for me, it's probably indelibly tarnished, and I don't. I don't know that there's a way back. Yeah, I think that's a that's a good way. That's probably a good way to put it. I think that like what you just said there about like if it was held in Russia, you wouldn't watch it. I think, like, I think, well, I'm, I feel like the World Cup couldn't happen. The World Cup wouldn't happen in Russia now if the Champions League final didn't happen in Russia now, right? But like, right. at what stage would <laughs> would the world decide we cannot let this happen? Like, that's the point. That's the kind of bit that that I'm not that I'm not sure about. And also, like, if we think so, next one's next one's Canada, US, Mexico, right? Yeah, right. So those are so those are three democratic countries. They're going to make some they're going to make some stadium refurbishments, but I don't actually know there's going to be any new stadiums constructed, right? So yeah. it's over an enormous geographic area. But to, that strikes me as a very good example. And maybe in some ways it's redemptive, right? Like maybe that's FIFA. This is not a country that's going to waste an enormous amount of money mm. building stadiums that aren't needed. Um, I'd be honest and say I do not know a huge amount about Mexican labour law, but I know a decent amount about US and Canadian labour law. And right, 
you know, construction workers in the United States and Canada are very well protected by labor laws. They're generally like fairly well paid professions, right? So if mm. there is large scale construction happening in these countries, it's going to be, it's going to actually be beneficial in a kind of broader economic and social sense. So that is a good example, but I have they awarded 2030 yet? I don't know. That's what I was just thinking. Like what, what if it's like, what, could it be Saudi Arabia? Like, could that happen? Could it be Saudi? I mean, I would have said no, but but for a bunch of reasons, I think it would be a bridge too far, right? But they've got their new golf tournament. Oh, yeah. And um, someone I'm not in the business, I don't know anything about golf, but someone I'm not generally in the business of crediting, but Tiger Woods turned down $600 million to join that tournament, yeah. which you have to say gives give a bit of credit for that. And they've had a bunch of big big title fights as well. I think one of AJ's recent fights was in Saudi Arabia, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and I should also say, right, people may not know this, which is totally reasonable, but look at the map of where Saudi Arabia is and where Qatar is. Like, Saudi Arabia is not hosting this tournament, but Saudi Arabia is implicated in this tournament. Mm. And many people will be staying in Saudi Arabia for this tournament because there are no fucking hotels in Qatar. Yeah. So... I don't know that you would see Saudi Arabia. I mean, if for no other reason, I don't think they're going to go back to the golf. Only yeah, one yeah. World Cup later, no, I, right? Like I, it's probably I, time, probably time for an African one or maybe Australasia. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, that's right. I was more thinking from the perspective of like, <laughs> I think people would look at Saudi Arabia and think in the way that they did when they'd taken over Newcastle, like, fucking hell, that's not great, is it? Um but then, but then, you know, on the football media, in the football media that I consume, podcasts and the shows, right? The podcast I listen to is a nice lefty liberal podcast, so they generally make a point of talking about the Saudi ownership. But like, you know, here in the US, NBC who have the Premier League rights, and they do the the, the production is terrific. But like, they're not talking about it every game. They're talking about Eddie Howe. They're talking about like the tactical successes. They're talking about how well their signings have done. How impressive yeah. it is that they're in third. Like, they're not bringing it up. Like Jamal Khashoggi's name never gets mentioned. Yeah, yeah, no, I, 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 even I did, I, I did, I've recorded my like team of the season so far podcast with, uh, with my friend Hayden, and like we put four Newcastle players in there without thinking about what it means that Saudi Arabia have bought the how, club. How many Arsenal players? Uh, four as well, actually. Good, just checking. Um, keeping you honest. Yeah, but like, I get. Yeah, I guess I'm. If if this is gonna like kind of forever change the relationship between fans and the tournament like but the next tournament isn't necessarily i mean it might not bring up this sort of stuff but it might bring up other questions conversations i guess at, at what point do we like revisit these things and when we revisit them what might the context look like um because it hasn't like you said it hasn't been it's not it's not enough at this point to to say i'm not going to watch it so when might it? I think, I mean, I think we will know more after the World Cup's finished. Like, will will broadcasters in the UK, for example, actually talk meaningfully about LGBT rights, about labour, about labour rights, about women's rights? Mm. Will there be protests? Will there be arrests of gay people in Qatar for mm. holding hands in the street? Like, I think that right now the dice are still in the air. Yeah. And we will have a much better sense once once the World Cup has actually been completed. I think having it 
there's a really like people have a really strong normalcy bias right like people want to people want to enjoy the football and they don't want to be confronted with these things and i think there's a like grim possibility that it just all gets kind of forgotten and yeah. Qatar's global image gets bolstered and we just move on to the next world cup um you know women's world cup next year is in it's in australasia isn't it yeah australia new zealand right yeah and that's going to be fantastic and we're all going to get swept up in it and england are going to win and we're going to forget our criticisms of fifa because it's going to be great and it's going to be in a beautiful country and people who go are going to have a great time yeah so yeah shit i'm really what you said before about how <laughs> like did so like south africa 2010 was like new like f- first world cup in africa like oh my god amazing right 2014 brazil like most culturally significant football nation in the world 2018 russia 2022 qatar blah 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 blah. 2026 oh my god america like great tournament where we could travel everywhere like maybe that is the plan to just yeah just fly fly everyone through this like i don't know weird i mean i think i think journey but it's interesting to look at 10 and 14 as well right in addition to in addition to 18 and 22 like 2010 south africa it was an extraordinary thing to have a first world cup in africa you know also a continent with 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 tremendous footballing culture right but Mm. how many of those stadiums are actually i don't know are actually still in active use being used to their appropriate capacity justifying the multi-billion dollar investment yeah, I, I, I don't know. Yeah. Ditto, ditto in Brazil, right? Where mm-hmm. several of the stadiums are now are now derelict. Do do people in South Africa and Brazil look back on those World Cups and be like, "Yeah, I'm really, I'm really glad we did that. That was a great use of money." Yeah, but then the counter to that is that like you just would do it in countries that have this infrastructure already, where these stadiums get used, and then you don't get the like global spread the game around the world stuff we're just going to do it in america and europe where these teams exist that's a really good point but is it better to do it in america and europe or to do it in dictatorships where they'll just like build them over the objections of the people i don't know yeah i don't know either <laughs> um you know i would rather i would rather have them in europe than to go back to the gulf like we'd all rather see like france germany italy spain hosting them than to see it in saudi arabia right like that would be <laughs> Yeah. That would be a real. That would be, you know, I think we said at the top of this com- top of this conversation, this is a low for FIFA. But in the words of Chairman Mao, it's always darkest before it's completely black. But the things can always get worse, and they probably they probably will with FIFA. I don't know what's it going to be like. World Cup twenty thirty on the grounds of Auschwitz. Like let let's see let's see where this that. goes. Right, I think we'll leave it there. And on that happy note, <laughs> um, so I, I just want to give like one one closing thought, which is that I think people people should feel okay about watching. Like mm. none of us had a vote at the FIFA Congress to award this World Cup to Qatar. None of us is guilty, but we are all responsible. And maybe that means like having conversations. Maybe that means giving money. Maybe that means if you're involved in grassroots football, doing what you can to ensure that your club is the antithesis of the World Cup in Qatar and is open and welcoming to queer and trans people and that you're turning up with your grassroots club to picket lines in your community to support labour rights. 
people should enjoy the World Cup. Like the world is shit. Britain, particularly at the moment, is just an absolute disaster. And people deserve a bit of joy from the World Cup. I feel that really deeply. Uh, but that doesn't give us the right to look away. Very nicely put, Mikey Franklin, live from an undisclosed location in Washington DC.